What is inflation actually? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Moin Yaya. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Moin Yaya. Moyne has been teaching since 2003. His research interests include law and economics with a particular focus on utilities and financial markets regulation. Before attending law school, Moyne was employed with Industry Canada's Competition Bureau, where he worked on various merger and civil non-merger issues. He is currently a member of Alberta's Human Rights Commission and has also been a member of the Alberta Utilities Commission and the Selection Advisory Board of the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada. One of Moyne's papers, Inflation and Paper Money, an Historical Perspective, will inform most of our discussion today. Moyne, welcome to The Curious Task. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure and honor to be invited. And it's great to have you on, Moyne. So we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what is inflation actually? And what we're really going to be doing is exploring some key pillars of your paper, actually, your forthcoming paper, uh, Inflation and Paper Money. And we're going to get to the nature of both. So we're going to be starting with some basics and, and build up. I really want this to sort of be a high-level teaser and, and walkthrough for the listener. And, and I hope they do keep an eye out for your forthcoming paper. So let's start with the basics real quick. I, I'd like to build, actually, from what money is itself and what banking money is, and then get into the kinds of money the world leverages now and how monetary systems do work. So right right from the start, we can build up to the way things work now and what's going on. Then I'd want to contrast with theoretical alternatives and so on and so forth. And then I think it makes sense to leave inflation sort of at the end of the first chunk of our conversation. We'll talk about inflation separately from money and banking. So before fiat currency or hard currency or whatever discussion, let's just talk about currency in general. What is money? What are its characteristics? Take us through the, the economic 101 on this. Yeah, good question. So uh, I'll just uh, qualify everything uh, at the start by saying, you know, I'm uh, approaching this uh, a bit from a law, uh, legal perspective and a little, little bit from a, an economic perspective. And obviously, each uh, side has their own uh, nuanced uh, definition. So my uh, take on the, in the discussion today might not be accurate according to one uh, particular view or not, but I'm speaking broadly speaking. So uh, that's just a general caveat. Uh, so money is, you know, why do we have money? It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of an age-old question that uh, occupies economists, anthropologists, historians, and uh, the like. And, uh, you know, you can kind of... Uh, figure this out by doing a thought experiment. If we were living, if, you know, two people were living together or one person was living in a, on an island, you wouldn't need money because whatever you needed, you could just make yourself. I, if, if there were two of us, I would do a specialize in, uh, I don't know, in, uh, you know, um, uh, milk and you would specialize in eggs or I would do uh, food, you would do clothing and we would exchange it at some sort of preset, uh, you know, measure uh, maybe one uh, pint of milk for you know three uh, shirts and something like that. So, if we lived in a very simple world where there was a, a few commodities and services, we could we wouldn't need uh, what we think of as money because we could just have preset relative prices. We would have relative measures of exchange. You know, one cup of milk for one shirt or something like that. Obviously, if something uh, got more scarce, if there was more, we needed more, there was not enough milk, maybe the price of the milk would go up. So you'd, one cup of milk would be five shirts or three. But the point is, 
we would be exchanging everything in a kind of an autarkic or barter system. And there are uh, communities like that. Even, even today, there are people mm-hmm. who try to live off the grid, uh, who set up their uh, kind of green exchanges and things like that, where they just, uh, you know, they grow their own food and they live kind of off the grid and they try to do everything uh, informally as much as they can, whether it's for tax reasons or just for communitarian reasons. Um, once you start getting more than a certain amount of goods and services involved, it becomes hard to keep track of all these relative prices. Or once you get more than one or two or three, you know, four or five people, it becomes harder and harder, especially historically. Maybe today with computers, uh, somebody could keep a spreadsheet and keep tab of all the IOUs and things like that. But, you know, historically, what happens is uh, that societies start evolving and converging towards a few items that give that we will call currency and and what we can notice the common feature of all these uh, items is that they have three characteristics the first is that they are a unit of exchange so socially we've all kind of just accepted that whether it's gold coins silver coins or today paper money this is what we will use as our unit of exchange. In other words, if I want to buy milk from the store, I will give you a piece of paper. We all accept the piece of paper as our thing that we're going to carry around. The reason we then have it as a unit of exchange is that it also becomes a store of value. In other words, the dollar, and this is where inflation becomes an issue, but store of value means that this dollar will buy me a dollar's worth of uh, ice cream or a dollar's worth of, uh, you know, a haircut or whatever, $10, mm-hmm. you know, whatever I need. Um, so it's a store of value, a unit of uh, account and the medium, I'm sorry, I said medium, uh, medium of exchange and then a unit of account. Uh, we, you go into the supermarket and everything is denominated in dollars. It's a $5 for an ice cream, it's $10 for a haircut, you know, whatever. So that's the, what ends up being the uh, money and that's, uh, or currency and different societies over time have had different uh, currencies and uh, you know um, media units and things. Sometimes you've had a parallel. You have had multiple, and even today there are some places that have multiple uh, currencies. Right. Exactly. Okay. And then and with that basic tour of money, as we said, it's, it's medium of exchange, store of value, unit of account, and we talked about how it emerged. I want to shift gears for a second, actually, and just talk about the different kinds of money and currency now so like can you take us through just real quick you know of course traditionally there was you know money backed by specie and so on and so forth so you could talk a bit about that and then also contrast that with what fiat money is and so on so like let's talk about different kinds of money for a second yeah so again historically uh you know there there's the there's this uh, apocryphal story this famous story of a rock in uh, some island that everybody uh you know uh used as the, the medium, uh, the, 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 everything was measured with respect to this giant rock. Uh, the idea is that you want something that is hard to degrade. Uh, so that's why gold and silver was a good one. It was scarce. So you can't have too many gold coins or silver coins going around. Um, you know, if, uh, if, if today I was just going to use paper, I could just sit on my computer and print pieces of paper. That's why we have anti-counterfeiting laws and things like that. And that's why central banks invest in, you know, technology or try to discourage people now from using paper money, everything that goes electronic. Mm -hmm. But uh, the idea historically was that you wanted something that people would accept. It doesn't matter where in, not necessarily in the world, but at least in the immediate vicinity. So it should be something that uh, is scarce, is uh, easy to store, um, and and something like that. So, you know, and people kind of accept it. It's kind of has got an acceptance. 
And though the white acceptance and, and and which one dominates, you know, so you can have, uh, you know, in colonial America, they use tobacco leaves. You, you know, tobacco leaves are not necessarily the most durable, um, but there was a social acceptance. So sometimes social acceptance takes over the durability, takes over the the, the, the scarcity maybe. Uh, so it's not a, there's no formula that it has to be this or this or this or this. It's just kind of what emerges as the, what's the most convenient form of mm-hmm. medium of account and uh, medium of exchange unit of account and store of value. Mm-hmm. Um, that's historical uh, gold, silver, uh, you know, other metals maybe were the, would back the currency. So, of course, long ago, it was literally, you know, the gold coins and pieces of silver that were the currency. Right. Uh, that has its own issues. I mean, if you read old, you know, ancient tales of merchants uh, going on camels in the Middle East with the bags of gold on their, ca- you know, lay, you know, they would go with bags of gold, come back with, with bags of uh, commodities and goodies from wherever they were trading, right? So these are the classic stories. Mm-hmm. Over time, uh, people realize that it's kind of inefficient to do everything by carrying gold and silver or whatever the commodity was. And uh, the mine, what would happen is that the jewelers and miners and other merchants realized that they could kind of, they had a nice big safe, they could store the gold there and issue IOUs, pieces of paper that said, listen, you can come anytime and get your gold back. But in the meantime, here's Mm -hmm. this piece of paper. And I guess historically, probably was just a deposit. It was just meant to keep it safe. But then somebody who had the IOU realized that if I have a piece of paper that says the gold or the gold miner or the the banker or the whoever has my gold, I can just give it to my neighbor or give it to the shop. If I need to spend ten dollars, I don't need to <laughs> run to the bank, grab right. ten uh, pieces of gold, come back, and I can just give him the piece of paper that says mm-hmm. IOU. Uh, and over time, those pieces of paper become bank notes, so to say, and, you know, I'm abbreviating a lot of history here, but yeah. those uh, pieces of paper become the bank notes and they start circulating, uh, aided obviously by good technology, piece of paper that's durable and mm-hmm. uh, easy to um, verify, not forge, uh, be acceptable. And uh, so you, you get the emergence of uh, note brokers, people who can uh, sit in local communities and say, yep, this, this bank note that's coming from Italy is actually a, a legitimate bank note. Uh, there's, I know that merchant in Venice, uh, he's a good friend of mine. You know, we play golf every Sunday or whatever, um, you know, uh, something like that. And he can verify that's his signature. And so there's uh, levels of trust, uh, among, and so different notes start circulating from different banks. Um, if you ever needed your gold, you would show, you'd have to somehow get to that bank and present your note and get your gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe even uh, some notes were unknown, right? Maybe there are some notes from some banks nobody's heard of. I've never heard of this. You know, let's say uh, the Bank of Moyne, uh, you know, we've never heard of him. So my piece of paper that says there's a dollar of gold might not actually circulate at a dollar. It might circulate at 10 cents or five mm-hmm. cents, depending on people's, you know, kind of taking a bet. Is, am I going to get the gold if I show up or not? Right. So that's the original idea of paper money is it's actually backed by something. Mm. And it doesn't even have to be backed by gold and silver. It could be backed by wheat. Uh, you know, uh, it could be backed by... Um, uh, I have another paper where I'm talking about uh, crypto and stable coins and things like that. I mean, you know, there's this uh, famous uh, example. It's it's meant as a joke, but um, it's kind of used in legal uh, cases called a negotiable cow, right? If I wrote, uh, if I write on my, you know, like a check today, even today, doesn't have to be on a bank issue check. I can write a piece of paper saying, you know, right. if I put my account number and sign it and I say to the bank, hey, Alex, $10 from this account, 
they're supposed to accept it in theory. They don't like it because then they have to verify. I mean, the beauty of checks is that there's electronic ink and they can you know, immediately figure out if it's true right, or not. But right. in theory, if I write an IOU to you and I put my, you know, then that's a, that's good as cash. Uh, you can then actually mm-hmm. use my piece of paper and circulate it. Right. So there's a famous case of a guy who wrote IOU and all that on a, on a cow. Uh, and uh, he tried to take the cow to the bank and cash it. Uh, <laughs> So of course the bank would have to take the cow and you know give him ten dollars you know for a cow, yeah. but it's it was a joke. But the point is historically you could you, you could do an IOU on anything, not only physically uh, ride it on a cow, but it could also be backed by cows or wheat or right. any commodity. Uh, gold and silver become the common because the world kind of says, look, we we all know gold and silver. There's always somebody who can verify the gold and silver, and uh, that's the paper money. Now. At different points in history, governments kind of decide they want to get in on this racket because uh, there's always two ways for, generally speaking, two ways for governments to finance their whatever they want to do, whether it's a war or mm-hmm. or just government programs, and that is either tax or somehow kind of get hold of the money, right? So you can right. get hold of the money by taxing it. You can also get hold of the money by uh, taking the gold coins. And uh, saying, look, uh, the weight of uh, you know uh, a dollar is uh, whatever half an ounce mm-hmm. or an ounce or tenth of an ounce, but when they issue the the, the actual uh, gold, they it's not actually what the weight it is. It might be a little less, and it, usually it's a right. little less. It's like a percentage less. They shave a little bit off, and that's why, by the way, historically coins have those uh, ridges around them hmm. to prevent people from shaving them, so that right. if you get a piece of gold that doesn't have the ridges, you know somebody has been shaving the right. Uh, the gold off of it right so that's how they start they kind of play around with the gold and silver and then uh, they kind of look at these pieces of paper that are being issued and they go you know what why don't we get in on this paper money game uh it's kind of like a neat racket so they start issuing paper money also originally backed by gold and silver um and then they kind of say well listen people uh, you're not really using those pieces of gold uh, you know you're just kind of like in circular so does it matter if 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 there's one piece of paper for every piece of gold let's just print a few more pieces of paper. And uh, eventually what happens is they just break the connection to gold and silver. It starts happening, uh, at least in the modern era, in the 1930s um, in in the United States and other places. And then it's just this unmoored paper. It's not backed by anything. It's just paper. Now, the original pieces of paper that in 1930 are the amount of paper that probably was equivalent to in gold or, you know, in the treasury, but uh, now it's just you're at the mercy of the central bank printing paper. Right, and I actually want to. I actually want to stop right there. And make sure to really, really split these two things in half here, because um, for listener not familiar with this, I want to make sure we're 100 percent clear about this. So it, it's it's one thing, as you said, for a, um, a paper money to be in circulation that is technically backed by a currency, and there is, you know, there has there is a history of private banks, and of course the government as well printing more money than actually is in reserve. That's a whole different story. But but then we actually move from there being any backing at all, as you're saying, by any kind of commodity or species or whatever into like a pure situation where, you know, the, you have the fiat money where it is literally not backed up by anything. So I just want you to, clar- to clarify yeah. that for the listener too. So how how can you get into a little deeper like history, specifically in the United States, of course, how yeah. what exactly it looks like and, and how that works? Did the government truly just wake up one day and say, actually, you know what? You can't redeem this for gold, but that's still $30. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know it's interesting. Canada is actually a better in a better situation than the United States because we our banking system is uh, superior to the uh, by initial design and by practice. You know, mm-hmm. we, on the one side we have less banks 
So we have more monopoly, uh, monopolistic behavior by banks. But on the other hand, it means it means at least historically we've had stability in our banking system, and so uh, we in Canada could easily switch back to a uh, privately issued currency world because we that's what we had. I have pictures, and you can just Google online now. Like I mean, I had these pictures because I photocopied them from a book. But yeah. you just Google now, you can find Bank of Montreal notes and Bank of Nova Scotia notes or whatever they were called back then, mm-hmm, uh, you know, CIBC notes or uh, TD notes, you know, so you can actually find notes and they were all issued by redeemable by in gold. So you could go to your TD branch or whatever it was called back then and uh, present this and then you would get some gold back. And yeah, uh, the private banks in the United States, Canada and elsewhere in the world could over issue. That's true. But what would constrain them is a run on the bank. You, right. you would show up if too many people showed up and trying to redeem the gold. Um, then the bank would collapse. It doesn't take a lot of you know people; just enough. So banks, good banks, reputable banks, had an incentive to keep the circulation kind of tied to how much gold was in the treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they went a little too much, they might have to suspend redemption, have to borrow money from another bank, and you know, uh, pay back. And uh, and and you know, a lot of states in the U.S. even had liability for shareholders. Like if you were a shareholder in a bank, uh, you would be liable on the hook for the deposits. Uh, sometimes up to triple the amount, right? Uh, things like that, double liability, single liability. You know. So there were uh, rules in place. It wasn't just a wild, wild west. Um, people like to portray the 19th century in the United States as this, we call it the wildcat banking, where anybody could just open a bank and issue notes. That happened at certain points in certain frontiers, you know, like you know, when the co- country's expanding. And But generally speaking, the banks were pretty decent. Yeah, there's up and down. Uh, Governments, when they started getting in on the paper money racket, so to say, they uh, would try to keep it somewhat notionally tied to the gold. Although, you know, in my paper, I talk about the Civil War era where they unmoored it from the gold and suspended. But uh, after the Civil War, they went back. But it's in the 1930s when they not only broke the connection, they almost they made it actually criminal to possess gold, um, uh, to actually own it, uh, like especially uh, the, 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 the currency types. So there are still cases today, and I mean t- literally today, where if you find uh, an, a, a gold uh, coins from that era, like buried in somebody's backyard, um, it is illegal for you to mm-hmm. own it. The, the treasury will come after you and uh, confiscate it. Right. Uh, so, so, so legally, and again, I want to stop there just so we don't gloss over it, especially for those who aren't familiar. So, so legally is what the government is literally saying is, as you said, when they untether it from a commodity, is basically saying, yes, this is thirty dollars, but not only can you not renew it for a commodity, it also just doesn't matter. Just live with the fact it's thirty dollars. Is that like yeah. what is truly happening at a literal yes, level? Yes, so fiat money. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, just to clarify, today you can own gold. Obviously, you can go to any store and own gold. You just can't own those uh, coins that were issued in that era. But uh, yes, so today when the dollar, uh, when you you open your wallet and you take out a loonie and it says $1 or you take out a US dollar and it says $1, it really just means this will get you a dollar's worth of whatever people are charging a dollar. And, and a accepting dollar. and paying taxes yeah. and, and so on. Right? Yeah. yeah, but you're not, there's no gold. You can't go into the bank or the treasury. If you go into your bank and say, I want to redeem this $1, they will just give you another dollar back. It might be a fresher, crisper dollar right. or a shinier coin, but you're not getting any gold or any cows or any wheat or anything. Right. So the whole thing really just survives on the supply and demand model for money because there are competing currencies and so on and so forth. And basically the credibility of, of the government and the banking systems that back it up, I guess, right? It's uh, faith. It's really, it's, it's really sustained by faith in the government. I don't know faith in what, really, but it's really <laughs> just faith in the government that they will be reasonably honest in, in how much money they print. Um, because what will constrain the government at the end of the day is, as we are seeing now um, and, and all over the world, is inflation. Yes. So 
prices will start to rise. And we can talk about that in a sec, but just to give you the punchline, when prices get too out of control and that dollar piece of dollar is not worth a dollar anymore, as they say, you know, a dollar ain't worth a dollar anymore. Um, you, you know, you, the, the, the cup of ice cream used to cost you a dollar. Now it's costing you $10 at some point, And the, we see this in other parts of the world. People just lose faith in that and, and no longer accept it. Uh, and that's when the currency breaks down. And we see that in lots of countries in the world where the central banks start overissuing uh, money mm-hmm. and you get in not only high inflation, but worse, what happens is you get a breakdown in social, because then everybody's trying to find the next currency, right? Uh, the government is trying to force you to use their paper money uh, and nobody kind of wants to use it. So there's a begrudging use of it. If you're uh, like, it's almost, you know, society almost views the person who's holding the paper, the paper money as a sucker, right? Like right. Oh, you're the, you're the one who wasn't yeah. sophisticated enough to get out and. Yeah. Uh, why, and why is he not trading in cigarettes? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah or why is he not using that? Why? Yeah, exactly. and, you know, yeah, so it becomes, uh, and, and that creates, that has other implications, right? That's, I mean, that we've seen in, in historically when you get that level of distrust and it's because it's not, people are, don't sit there and say, well, it's really the central bank that's uh, bad, but I, I like the rest of my government. Yeah, at <laughs> some point, uh, the social uh, order breaks down, not mm-hmm. Nobody is distinguishing between, you know, the central banker X and uh, right. they're just like, this whole thing is rotten. and uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as you said, like, we will get a little more specific on inflation as a second. But then um, now let's pick, we talked about money. We talked about specie. We talked about fiat money, which is all great. So as continuing our contact setting, so to speak, of course, we can't get into way too specific. Things, but before we talk about inflation, I do want to talk really about at a high level, what central banks are theoretically supposed to be doing and what kind of tools they have at their disposal so we can make sense of inflation in a second. So why don't you tell us a bit about that too? What Whether it's you know central, I know they there's different systems all over the world, of yeah. course, they're all slightly different, but generally speaking, what are central banks in Canada, the United States kind of thing? Like What are they generally supposed to be doing and what, what kind of general tools do they have at their disposal? Yeah, so they're, again, historically, they evolved, like the Bank of England was actually a private uh, bank that uh, was sort of like the clearinghouse uh, for uh, so some of them evolve as planet clearinghouses. They're the banks that facilitate other banks to change. Uh, you know, check. You know, you get a TD check uh, deposited in the CIBC, and then you need so somebody has to kind of clear that. So that's one function that originally some some not all central banks. I'm I'm right. just kind of lumping all of the Western banks in together. Some also were the government's bank. Uh, so they used to be. That's where the treasury used to deposit its gold. And then uh, they would issue the IUs that the government. They would issue the, the, the you know, if the government wanted to buy cannons or uh, horses, they, they it was the Bank of England that would you know issue. So they were kind of private banks in a sense to the uh, to the government. Mm. Uh, in the United in Canada, uh, our central bank, the Bank of Canada, comes around in the 1930s. I mean, there's uh, early versions of it, but essentially it takes over around there. They too were kind of tasked with kind of. Being a bit a bit a bit of all of the above, um, the Federal Reserve in the United States it's kind of an interesting. It's a bit of a mishmash because the Federal Reserve is a both private banks own. It's it's really a complicated system, like everything in the United States. <laughs> right. uh, there's not there's a federal there's a central uh, you know the the governors of the, the Federal Reserve located in Washington D.C. They are the ones who set monetary policy, but then there are regional Federal Reserve branches which have. Uh, private banks also being part of the governance. Those uh, branches were ostensibly set up to facilitate all this intercheck, uh, inter, you know, balancing and all of that, and uh, distributing of the government's, uh, you know, uh, the, the treasury bills and things throughout 
because the Federal Reserve is founded um, before going off gold. So when the Federal Reserve was founded, it, was, it wasn't there to supplant the gold originally. It was there to kind of keep an orderly uh, eye on the financial system because there were right. these bank panics going on. And so, so depending on which part of the world you're in, um, you know, the central banks are there for a variety of these reasons. Over time, uh, panics, you know, financial panics, uh, usually because of wars, uh, there's wars, but not always, uh, it necessitates more, uh, more money by governments. So they're trying to borrow money and they can't borrow. So they just want to print money or the, um, there is a financial panic, but you know, is it caused by something else and, and uh, whatever it's for whatever reason, over time, these central banks start stepping in, uh, through legislative, uh, backing to become the, the keepers of order in the financial world. And then eventually they become the issuers of uh, the paper money Mm -hmm. and they take away the gold. So today, uh, central banks, their role is all of this, right? They're clearing houses. They they issue the, uh, they print the money. Um, They are supposed to keep stability in the financial system. Uh, You know, the Federal Reserve also has uh, this mandate of full employment and stable prices. Our Bank of Canada has a kind of a a mandate of uh, uh, stable prices. The stable prices, uh, you know, it's it's important, uh, but it, but it, a central bank doesn't necessarily, like in theory, doesn't have to be there for stable prices. Right, it, right. It, it makes it actually makes its hard its job harder if it's uh, not keeping the prices stable. So you could argue, even if there was no mandate in the long run, it would want to keep the prices stable. Right. But uh, that's kind of where uh, their mandates are. And in terms of their toolkit. Um, again, historically, they would print money, literally print money. So today, they, so they control of, the supply and the quantity yeah, of money. Yeah, so okay. you know, you need money uh, here. Let's print some more dollars. Uh, you know, t- uh, uh, this is where everybody. I always get some, you know, technical quibbles. Somebody will say in the U.S., well, technically, it's the Treasury that's printing the money, not the Federal Reserve. I, okay, I understand, but at the end of the day, it's still the Federal Reserve that's you know kind of asking for the money. Um, but uh, what happens today is the, the, the amount of printed paper money is not actually that much in comparison to uh, just deposits in banks. So what the central banks do, uh, generally speaking, is they can play with the amount of deposits there are in, in, in the banking system, generally speaking, either by just uh, adding a bunch of zeros. Like, let's say the government has an account in Bank of Montreal. They could, in theory, deposit some more uh, Canadian dollars into, into that uh, account. Uh, and then where did that money come from? They just printed a bunch of zeros and deposited. That's mm-hmm. one way to do it. Um, they can also uh, do what I call open market operations, where they buy uh, treasury bills, right? They go in and uh, so the government needs money, it needs to borrow money to run uh, deficits. So the treasury uh, issues these bonds, private people can buy them, banks and others, or the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada can also just, just be the one buying them. Mm-hmm. Well, you can say, well, what are they buying them with? Well, they're just printing money. That's how they're buying them, right? So uh, Whichever way you do it, at the end of the, at the day, they're basically printing money, whether it's digital money, like zeros in mm-hmm. an account, which goes somewhere, or there's the odd paper money that's being printed. But today, it's basically digital. And in a way, because it's digital, it's so easy to do. It gives central banks even more ability to right. play with the money. Right? So. So, so there's multiple tools, but at the end of the day, they, they have the, these, the monopoly on the currency and they control the money supply. And uh, and right before break, I just want to touch on one, one more set of tools, I guess. They also do, through these processes, play around with like certain interest rates and borrowing rates and so on and so forth, which affect the rest, I guess, right? Yeah, they can either uh, actually set the interest rate uh, by just kind of play, uh, rigging the um, the uh, treasury um, auctions uh, or just buy if you're printing if you're buying so many treasury bills uh, you know like, let's say you're printing a lot of money 
and you're buying all these uh, government treasury bills, well, if you're buying a lot of stuff, you're raising its price. There's a demand. And the price of a treasury bill uh, is inversely related to the interest rate on it, right? So as you buy more treasury bills, you're essentially lowering your uh, the interest rate. So you're printing money and you're lowering interest rates. Uh, so you can either do it directly or indirectly. Uh, you can also just set the overnight interest rate. That's how you do it. It's the overnight rate. And that's the rate that essentially banks use. If, if Bank A wants to borrow money from Bank B, because uh, too many checks came in on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't have enough cash to redeem at that moment. It borrows. And so that's the overnight rate that it borrows at. And uh, that's kind of a peg. So if that's low, if that's a, let's just say it's one, it's not, but if it's 1%, that means and that's the risk. That's the least risky interest rate in the economy. So every other interest rate usually has to be higher because mm. there's a little more risk. So right. if I keep raising that overnight rate, every other interest rate in the economy has to rise. So you have two general ways to play with interest rates. Great. And actually, that is an excellent place to take our break with all that context setting. We'll jump into some more follow-up questions in a second. But for now, we will take our break. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Moin Yaya today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, John Robson, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Moin Yaya today. Moin, I think this was a, a great conversation so far. We cut through a lot. I will encourage our listener again to keep an eye out, eye out for Moin's upcoming paper in the Kansas Journal of Public Policy uh, when he's talking about inflation and paper money. And I'll repeat the full title again. It's Inflation and Paper Money, an Historical Perspective. Uh, and and that is going to uh, that of course is informing most of our conversation today. But we don't have time to cover so much. But again, I think the first half was a really good tour through all the basic concepts: money, banking, different kinds of currencies, and so on. Now I want to move us on to that. Okay, so given that we have a world with central banks, especially in the United States and Canada, of course, and fiat money, and so on and so forth, based on all the con- context that we just covered so far. If someone's trying to understand the world as far as the conversation of inflation is concerned, as the world is today, we'll leave historical stuff for for later, perhaps. But as it is today, what is inflation definitionally? What is happening if we see inflation, like, you know, rising, falling, whatever? Just give us a bit of a tour of that. Yeah, so economists, uh, again, loosely speaking, define inflation as the percentage uh, rate of change of the price level year to year. You can also do it month to month, but let's just keep it general year to year. Um, and what price level means, um, it's not, you know, just the price of apples or oranges. What uh, typically like in Canada, Stats Canada, Statistics Canada will um, come up with what's called a basket of goods. And it's supposed to be the representative consumption profile of the average Canadian. Right. So, so there's a shopping might, cart type metaphor, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you think about what you spend your money on in a year, that's your. So, so if I bought, I don't know, like if I buy eggs, milk. Uh, but how many eggs, you know, so so it's weighted by how much, you know, let's say I, I have an, an, egg, an egg a day. So that, so if I had to buy 365 eggs plus, uh, you know, so many gallons of milk, um, food, uh, you know, if I'm renting or, or buying, you know, so housing, a car, do I drive, not drive? So it's the average consumption bundle of the average Canadian kind of thing. So if you think mm-hmm. of it that, 
how much would that cost? Let's say just just to make a very easy number, it cost me ten thousand dollars. So mm-hmm. if that's really it's not obviously, but it, let's just make it ten thousand just to make numbers easy. Right. Then next year, if we engage in the exact same exercise, how much would it cost me to live? Uh, we can make it even call it a hundred dollars. You know, just make it easy, a simple yep. number, a round number. Yep. So next year, what uh, what would that exact same bundle cost? Uh, let's say it's no longer ten thousand or no longer hundred. Uh, it's a hundred and two. So, you know, it would be um, uh, 10200 or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it went up. We would say the price level went up 2%, right? It went from 100 to 102. Um, that's the, so we would say the inflation rate was 2%. Um, and uh, now, you know, we obviously don't want to keep the, the basket the same because otherwise, if we did this from 100 years ago, we wouldn't have, you know, the price of computers and we wouldn't have the price of right. cars even. <laughs> right. uh, and my uh, milk might be way more, I might be drinking way more milk, uh, less meat. So the StatsCan and the other uh, government agencies, they always try to refine this, this, this basket so that it reflects reality. But that's the general idea is that at least year to year, if you, in, you know, in a short run, it tends to be the same basket. Um so, the, so inflation is just the uh, percent change in the kind of overall price level. Now, there might be some items that are going up more than 2% and some items, in, at least in my example, and some items going up uh, less than 2%, but the average is 2%. Right. So that's the basics then of inflation, definitionally, as, as you well, well explained through. How then does inflation more generally happen with fiat currency? Again, assuming the world today, central banks, fiat currency, so on and so forth. You know, every time you turn on the news, listen to a government representative, listen to a central bank representative. Everyone, of course, has a different discussion as to how the hell are these these prices going up? How come inflation's happening? But of course, you're going to tell us from your perspective what what, what really it, it comes down to at the bottom of all this. So, how does this happen yeah. then? So prices can go up without inflation going up. So like I said, if uh, prices went up, if the price of one particular item uh, went up 20%, but then all the other or the corresponding, like, and and and, 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 and of course it's by weight. So if I'm only spending, like think about Q-tips. Uh, if you buy Q-tips, uh, how often do you buy Q-tips? Once a year, maybe not even right, maybe right. once every few years. So if, if you, you could, uh, you could uh, quadruple, you could uh, raise the price of uh, Q-tips, you know, a hundredfold. Right. And it would not affect that basket of yours, that uh, of your consumption, mm-hmm. because even if, even if it went up a hundredfold, it would go up from, I don't know, $5, 500, you know, so you'd buy one box and it would last you another few years. So you're not, it's not going to impact your, the uh, inflation rate uh, mm-hmm. in, in that basket. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that you're eat, uh, consuming a lot of, and the price of that goes up, then that average is also going to go up. Maybe not the full amount, like like say if the price of meat goes up. Uh, let's say the price of meat doubles. Um, you know, inflation won't necessarily double because you're not spending all your money on in, on meat only. But uh, what happens is that you can also have the price of food going up, but the price of gasoline going down, right? So mm-hmm. your budget overall might still be come out in, in neutral. So we, we could actually have the price of one commodity going up, but... Uh, inflation being zero or even negative, just depends. So inflation then is an issue when all prices are kind of going up. Right. Uh, and there may even be prices going down, but on average- uh, The general price the, level, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of the prices seem to be going up, some more than others. Um, like I said, there may even be falling prices, but generally speaking, the prices have kind of all gone up. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that kind of gets confused, and this is kind of why I wanted to do this historical uh, thing, is that in the modern, just on the talking heads on TV and all that, is we always conflate two things. 
Price of oil is going up. Yeah, maybe because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, price of food might be going up, especially wheat, because, because of the war in Ukraine. But that should, that should only explain X percent of the rise in prices. What's happening is the price of everything else is going up. Now, you might say, well, the price of oil you know, goes up, so that impacts the, uh, the transportation, so that impacts this, that impacts that, that, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's correct. But, uh, you know, presumably then uh, people should be able to adjust their prices. They might be able to try to find cheaper alternatives. Uh, what's happening right now when you have inflation, and not even necessarily now, generally speaking, is that there's just this inability to substitute from uh, expensive uh, inputs to, say, cheaper inputs. Or there's an inability to get uh, find uh, you know, cheaper uh, parts or something. And that means, that suggests one of two things. There's a big supply uh, shock, something, things are just, there's no supply, uh, or there's a huge demand or both, right? And I think right. the world we live in now is a little bit of both, right? Uh, we've uh, had a bit of pent-up demand from COVID. That's now, you know, people are now going out and spending. Maybe there's all those um, um, in Canada, the CERB checks or whatever it was, the stimulus checks as they right. call them. Uh, and you are also having shortage. Uh, and the puzzle, the conundrum at the end of the day is, is this happening? Is, is, is inflation just because of this stuff that I've described, or is there also this extra factor, which is that the central banks around the world have been printing all this money? Right. And that's, I think, the, the debate that always we end up in. Mm-hmm. Um, the, pop, the popular uh, debate tends to be focusing more on the supply and demand. And other than a few politicians and a few policy pundits, uh, you, you seldom get the central banks uh, being brought into the picture. Although I, I have to say the last month or so on both sides of the border, uh, I, you know, I do see now discussion about the role of Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve in, in this inflation world we live in. Mm-hmm. And, and and actually, now, I think that's a good time to bring in, So because we did, of course, explore the basics of the, the central bank's toolkits and so on and so forth, like what kind of tools they have. I want to get a little more specific on the on the causation of, inf- of inflation, especially when there's like drastic increases in some cases. So the central bank for, will, for instance... Um, and there are times in, in crisis or what is perceived to be by politicians or central bankers, for instance, a need for economic stimulus or, or what have you, times where the central bank feels like it needs to act and actually go about printing lots of money or, you know, there's quantitative easing policies like in the United States and so on and so forth. W- w- would you say that these are the sorts of times where, you know, um, the, the, the regular run of the mill, if you will, duties of the central bank aren't necessarily being adhered to and they're taking drastic money, uh, drastic measures, printing money and so on and so forth. And that we should probably look closer at these sorts of things when we're investigating some of the underlying causes of inflation, because oftentimes it follows not run of the mill type of banking situations, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, you know, so central banks are OK at managing inflation. They have been at least since the late um early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, uh, they've been decent. Uh, but again, we didn't have a scenario like we had today. So, you know, there's two ways to look at it. One, uh, you know, uh, you lose a lot of insight and experience uh, by, you know, 30 years going by and not having, um, on the other hand, there's writings. I mean, that's why I, I wrote this paper is to show that since the founding of the United States and uh, around the world, I mean, and, and historically, you know, people always understood that, inf- that printing money will cause inflation. Right. So, when COVID hit, uh, I think banks were a little maybe chastened by the 2008 uh, when we had the subprime mortgage meltdown, and maybe banks were accused of not responding quick enough. Then they felt kind of the need to respond very quickly now. Or um, I think also 
more they got a little emboldened by what they did in 2008 because in 2008 especially the federal reserve they just went on a quantitative easing spree um at one point they printed more money than, than had ever been printed in the history of the united states but they managed to just do it in a in an, i mean they didn't get it right uh, there was a bit of a slowdown right after they 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 ma- but they managed. If you look, the, the the inflation didn't go up too much, and they managed to put the brakes on it. They caused a bit of a mini dip and all that, but they kind of it, it, you know we muddled through it, and then uh, and then it's kind of a distant memory. Uh, you have to kind of go back and look at the charts to actually see what happened. But otherwise, everybody just in their pop popular memories that all oh, the Federal Reserve managed two thousand and eight, and I think that's kind of that a bit of that hubris caught up with them in this uh, in this round where they said, well, let's just do what we did in two thousand eight. And uh, and I think also maybe there's uncertainty. I mean, when you're dealing with a subprime mortgage, you kind of can count the banks and the mortgages that are going on here. Nobody knew maybe, you know, when uh, this COVID, uh, you know, is the vaccine coming? Is the, you know, are people, are, 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 you know, people were dying literally every day, you know. Uh, right. So uh, do, what do we need to do? So it was a bit of an uncharted territory. So, you know, th- if I'm putting on my sympathetic hat, I could say the, the banks kind of just erred on the side of caution in terms of, keeping things afloat and we'll deal with prices later kind of attitude. But on the other hand, when, uh, when you print that much money, so much money, you're, it's like, you know, you're, you're think like, it's, it's like, like a flood, like when water comes into a lake, if you have a houseboat at some point, the, the boat is going to rise and rise and rise. And so you have to have known that all this money you were throwing into the economy is going to start chasing goods and services and raising their prices, especially when people came out of the lockdown and, you know, were able to go back to work and buy things and, um, so that is where I think, uh, if you're going to, you know, that's where I think the central banks didn't get it right. Um, and that's why we're dealing with a lot of inflation. And of course the war in Russia, you know, that also comes along and, uh, cause adds to their uh, kind of misery, but, uh, there is a still a fundamental premise that there's a lot of money out there and policy wonks can blame all sorts of people and things other than the central bank. But I've never I, now. Maybe there's an economic historian out there who can point me to an uh, example. But generally, at least in my life and in the last hundred years, I've never seen a situation where banks have printed money. Or let me put it this way: I've never seen a situation where there was inflation and wasn't accompanied by banks printing money. There may have been a war. There may have been something else. Right. But it's kind of lurking. It's kind of like the elephant in the room. There's this money in the back that's doing something now it might not be doing all the things but it's doing something and it's doing a lot of it because there's a lot of money floating out there right and 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 in your paper you start getting into after you establish all the great things like we kind of talked about today money banking different currencies inflation more specifically and so on you start getting a little bit deeper into the effects of inflation and you frame your discussion in a way and you know you talk about how it affects the economy which you can tour through in a second if you'd like but you also note that inflation is not only an economic concern but it's also a legal concern so i just want to get a little deeper into in your mind I've, you know we talked about the causes and so on and so on uh, of inflation but but you don't you you don't seem to think that you know we should only be concerned from the perspective of oh the prices are going up like there's a lot more to be concerned about so can you get into into that lot more because i'd like to for listeners to hear why else beyond the prices rising is this concerning well i mean it's the 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 reason uh, and this is also there's a lot of reasons i mean prices rising should be a concern but you know people can respond by saying well just pay the workers x percent right if inflation is two percent or five percent just pay them five percent uh, the problem is, first of all, that gets us into this vicious cycle. So the, the workers get 5%, but then um, then now there's 5% more cash there, so they're, they're going to be chasing. So it's going to be a, a never-ending cycle. We need to get the prices under control. That's the first thing. 
But even if we could do that, if we could just index uh, everybody's salaries to inflation, the problem is, like I said, uh, there's this distributional aspect. First of all, uh, prices are rising 2% or 5% or 10%. That's the average. It, it, it might be rising 30% for food and uh, actually falling for uh, you know, uh, luxury boats, uh, which might show up in the index for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, the luxury boats are only consumed by a very small percentage of the population, uh, i.e. the rich. Um, but, uh, for the, uh, for the low income, uh, percent of the uh, uh, people in the population, the, the 30% rise in food actually is more, has a bigger impact than just 30% rise in food. It might be, you know, for somebody who's a millionaire, the 30% rise in food means, okay, my steak, you know, goes from $10 to $15 or $13 big whoopie do, right? That's the tip that I used to live. I'll put another $3 tip, but for somebody who has a fixed income, a very low, you know, low income, that 30% rise in food has a huge impact on their budget. And you you start hearing stories, even in our very wealthy North America, of people starving and people not being able to afford or cutting back or switching from healthy food that's usually more expensive too. So there are real impacts on the average uh, sort of uh, c- 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 consumer out there. So that's, for me, that's always the bigger, uh, the bigger issue is when you start seeing people um, because for inflation, usually the, the, the first thing that goes is the food um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so that's the first problem that I have with, uh, that I think people need to be alerted. It's not, it's, so when you see these policy wonks on TV are saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal for you because you make over, you know, a certain amount. And right. so, but for the person who has a family of five and has to feed and, you know, put food on the table, Every dollar makes a difference. That's why people, you know, clip coupons and wait for, you know, Discount Tuesday or right. or start shopping in the dollar store, things like that. Right. right? They're they're not worried about their their treasury bonds yeah. and their mutual, uh, you know, investments exactly. and all that kind of stuff. They're worried about can I go get it, get my food at the end of the week, right? Yeah, and that and that distributional aspect is a big thing for me, and I think it's it's kind of a cruel. It's it's one of the few, not few, but it's 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 an odd policy where. The government, in the name of you know keeping everybody or keeping the economy stable, or the central bank in the name of keeping the economy stable, is trying to print this money. But it has the almost robbing from the poor and giving to the rich effect. Yeah, some uh, some do refer to it as a, as a tax without being taxed, yeah, right? It is very much a tax. I mean, the other thing is like even in the the process. So when when the the government engages in quantitative easing, let's go back to that for a second, and they're buying all these treasury bills. And or they're printing money. Well, when they f- print the money the fir- at day one, it goes into bank uh, in the bank of uh, let's say whatever bank X's uh, account. That means that bank can now lend out that money or you know do things with it. So at that moment, there we still don't have inflation. So mm-hmm. they're they're kind of lending this money out. But who's borrowing it? Again, it's not you and me necessarily. It's a lot of uh, bigger, wealthier uh, clients who are getting access to this uh, uh, cheap money that the government is engaged in. And right. So. They get the cheap money, they get the cheap goods and services, and then they start buying up stuff. So eventually, by the time that money trickles down to you and me, uh, if it does, if you're on a fixed income, you're never going to see that treasury, that that printed money come to you. Um, well, all you see is the high prices. Right. And so the people who got wealthy are the people at the front end of the queue. Right. And again, the people at the front end of the queue of uh, money being printed are are, are not <laughs> average Canadians or average right. Americans. It's the rich and wealthy. It's, it's, it's not a it's not a direct you know universal basic income check. Yeah. It's like an infrastructure project from the government being invested yeah. by a large banking institution who's investing in this over institution over here. Exactly yeah. right. And that's why central banks, even in uh, other countries that were that have high inflation, um, 
they keep doing it. I, I always, you know, used to be puzzled when I was younger. Like, why, how, how do they get away? How, why do they keep, keep doing this? Because they're essentially commandeering because they make they force you to accept these uh, these you know pieces of paper. It's the government commandeering resources with these uh, you know phony pieces of paper that they printed. Right. Uh, they get the real resources, and now the people who had to give up give up their uh, food and uh, infrastructure and cement and all that at these inflated bills. They then have to fend for themselves, and so they buy uh, stuff from other people. And until the, the last person realizes, there's nothing left. Uh, all we have there are these pieces of paper that are now worthless. Right. So, so when you when you talk about inflation, not only of course being an economic issue, but also a legal one, and, and I'll just say obviously as well, like a a political type issue. So, in, in many ways, central banking controlling the money supply and so on and so forth is sort of another one of those like you know public choice stories, right? You have vested interests and concentrated benefits, but very dispersed costs. Where you know the average person, as you said, just trying to put the food on the table is bearing you know a, a fraction of that cost, but that gets distributed across the board. But in reality, as you said, in many cases. Um, you know, by the result of this quasi-political or fully political action, ultimately, you have a bunch of people at the front of the line, as you said, it's vested interest, completely benefiting before it affects everyone else. So obviously, it, it, it appears to me that when you add uh, all the stories together of uh, of inflation and so on and so forth, especially... Um, and, and I should say inflation with fiat currency and central banking and so on and so forth. Some of the historical tours that you provided in your paper too uh, seem to have like this sort of flavor as a lot of the folks at, at the historical time periods you point out in your paper were very well aware, maybe not necessarily of like exactly as you said, you know, how, how it's happening in 2022, but the fact that it's fiat money plus central banking authorities potentially or plus a government authority, so on and so forth, that it's not just an economic issue. It seems that as as you were saying in your paper, throughout history at different periods of time people discuss just this kind of thing too that it's not just an economic issue as i was saying uh, absolutely and 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 it does, both sides of the debate the, the ones who are in favor of paper money and the people who are against paper money almost make the same arguments we hear today so the people in favor of paper money they always turn it around they say look it's uh, you people who want gold uh, are the you know you're just in the pockets of bankers right uh, so and you and, and it's it's the rich who are robbing us and it's the so and we hear that today it's the Amazons and it's the whoever they're getting the rich are getting uh, the wealthier are getting wealthier they're the ones who uh, want high interest rates and want to control the inflation and all that uh, and the and the people who are in, uh, for, against paper money and for gold say no you've got it the other way around it's actually the rich who are getting richer by this printing of money and it's the poor who are suffering. And uh, the the discussions and I, the, the, the 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 episodes I have are you know the founding of the United States, the Civil War, and the the 1930s when they went off gold. I could have included in the paper the establishment of the Federal Reserve, but the the, the debates surrounding the Federal Reserve were not about whether we have paper or gold because they they were just assuming we're going to keep gold. So I didn't include those, but you can see some if you actually read those debates. A discussion about why is there a Federal Reserve? But in these three historical episodes in my paper. You see these discussions, and it's clear the the people who are for gold and against paper money, they're aware of all the problems that are happening today. The people who are for paper money are kind of making the same arguments that the people who make arguments today, but don't include the central bank. So anybody who says it's the greedy the greedy who are making prices go up, it's the it's the corporations. We need to tax them. We need to do that. Blah blah blah. But never mention the central banks. That's kind of the same camp, circa eighteen sixty, circa nineteen thirty three or four. You know, it's 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 almost amazing how you I could 
reprint those debates and take out the names and the and the years and you would think we were having the debate today right so as you said whether it was like you know the founding debates the civil war the great depression obviously each had their own nuances but you're saying there's sort of common threads throughout all of them and of course another common thread uh, throughout all of them just to be more specific is that and if all these people as you said the, these greedy people whether they want gold or to control inflation or whatever else would just get out of the way uh, the government could obviously do some great things if it was allowed yeah. to have more access to the money and so on and so forth so i guess there's another problem too right is that that common threads always the way through that is that the government itself yeah. uh, the state is is limited by a limited money supply and a constrained money supply or, or so on and so forth and not being able just to print as much money as they want right yeah and you know the interesting thing too is that even in i allude a little bit in some footnotes in my paper but you know there's even uh, almost a an element of xenophobia and anti-semitism in some of these uh, um it's the foreign bankers of group x or something like that uh, I was reading even you know even in some parts of the world where they're facing high inflation, like like you know a country like Turkey, which has been very good about taking in Syrian refugees, but is also facing huge inflation now. We're t- we're talking fifty, sixty percent mm-hmm. uh, again because their bank has been printing money. Uh, now the sentiment has turned on refugees because they're they're blaming them for the inflation, and and and, and so you know that's what I mean by inflation can have real social uh, destructive effects, and we saw this in obviously Nazi Germany. That's another uh, that's the, the 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 apocryphal example we always uh, put. Uh, you know, if you have too much inflation, you'll end up like there. But you don't have to go back to Nazi Germany. You can go to lots of countries where inflation uh, destabilizes the so- the social order because people it, it actually hits them. It hits the uh, the average person way more and way faster than it hits the elites. And then so they start not necessarily processing that's the central bank, but it's got to be these guys because they weren't there five years ago and now my prices are higher. It's also the central bank has been printing money <laughs> just recently. So, But nobody sees that. They always see, oh, there's this group that suddenly showed up or there's that group that suddenly showed up. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's interesting, of course, too, because there were eras before, like around the Civil War in, in, the, in the 1800s and so on and so forth, especially in the states where uh, the government was also able to turn and point to, as you said, the sort of like wildcat banks, like, you know, with with their own, as you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, with their own sort of notes and so on and so forth. Like, you know, every, that was very close in recent memory is to basically say, hey, look, the government's good you know, let us print the money, like that kind of stuff, like all these kind of like idea, centralize the authority is like a better sort of idea to help stability. That was a big argument. Now we've had from the 1900s onwards, you know, we do have central banking authorities that are technically supposed to be detached from the political realm, but we know how that works, right? So we do have nice, nice big state, nice central banking authorities. But as we can see, we do not have unlimited eras of stabilities and, and worry and, uh, and worry free times with the economy. We still are, still are dealing with inflation, money printing, and so on. So the uh, sort of vested interest that you talked about benefiting at the front of the line. So uh, the state and the central uh, money authorities have gone a lot of their way in the past hundred years, but uh, all the problems have certainly not gone. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you know, again, I don't want to be you know sound like too. Cr- I mean, central banks have done some things. Uh, you know, they, they 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 tend to be okay when things are okay. Uh, but you know, maybe uh, a competitive banking system would also be okay when things are okay. The real test is when things are not okay. How do the how do we handle that? Interestingly, thing uh, the interesting thing about the Civil War, um, the uh, the debates did at least in Congress did not seem to really get too much into the um, wildcat banking uh, free banking issue because. I think they were really just concerned about raising money at that point. It was really about how financing the war. I think if they were, if, I think you start seeing more uh, of the knock against cent- uh, wildcat banking later when the Federal Reserve is right, established right. In, uh, 
And then that, but we see today, for example, and this is another paper I have there. By the way, you can find all my papers on SSRN. If you just Google my name and SSRN, this one, the draft version is up there. There's another one where I deal with cryptocurrencies and stable coins. And I'm not necessarily a, a, a crypto bro or, you know, uh, all of them, but when I see people discussing stable coins, which are a very specific kind of cryptocurrencies, uh, they hearken back. They always invoke the wildcat banking and the George Selgin and Larry White, uh, who, if you can get them on a podcast, would be great. They're they're the they're the grand they're the OGs of free banking. They're the grand gurus of this stuff. Uh, or Will Luther, who's a friend of ILS, William Luther, who's done a lot right. of stuff. They can talk more about this, but they they've written a lot about this wildcat banking. But it's really fascinating how we've used the wildcat banking era today as a boogeyman against uh, things like crypto and and specifically stable coins. So it, it is important every, that's one of the reasons I, I'm writing this paper and I've written the other paper is to remind people that things were, are, you know, these, these uh, shorthand uh, monikers, you're saying, you know, wildcat banking, that's not w- what you think it is or saying, you know, gold standard, that's not the evil you think it is. In fact, let's look at the founding fathers in the US, uh, the civil war, the, uh, both of the debates and the Supreme Court case that came right after it. And uh, everybody understood there was there was a balanced discussion. There was a nuanced discussion on both sides, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and so people knew what was going on then. And so the idea that somehow people were living in ignorance 100 years ago and didn't know what they were doing. And now we're this enlightened group that we figured it out. They knew what was going on back then. Both sides, you know, even if you're pro paper money, they got the they had the score and they had the exact same arguments that are going on today. Right. Excellent. And actually, our, our time has like uh, wound down pretty much here. I mean, we, we covered so much in the conversation. I, I am going to move us to actually our formal wrap up now, as we're pretty much out of time, as I was saying here. And, and in each uh, conversation, Moyne, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to, you know, bring everything full circle, put a finer, finer, finer point on our exploration of the question, the conversation. So let me ask you sort of the official last question here. We've talked about a lot. What do you hope are the main takeaways, though, for someone listening to you here? on what inflation is, money, the impacts of it, so on and so forth. Again, it's almost unfair. Your, your paper was so large. Our discussion covers so much. I'd, of course, you know, it's, it's unfair for you to summarize everything in one sentence. But ultimately, if you wanted someone to remember one, two, or just a few things from this whole conversation, if any, what would those ultimately be, do you think? What would you like to leave people with? No, inst- institutions matter, and so in- which includes our central banking system, whether it's in Canada or the U.S. And it's important to pay attention uh, – to you know the political uh, actors when they talk about what they want to do, regardless, I, you know I'm not political. Just whichever, pay attention to what their views are and make sure that politicians understand that at least one source of inflation is the monetary system. Uh, you can blame the Russians and the Ukrainians and every you know for a bunch of things, but the central bank has a role and you and people need to pay attention to it. Blunt. All right. Well, Moin Yaya, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Mm